Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Kent Bostock. Kent Bostock distinguished himself in battle as Corporal Bostock, holding the line against thousands of Zulus at Rourke's Drift in January 1879. Of course, poor old Kent never did any of this. But if you would like me to lie about you, then head on over to Patreon and see what's what. Otherwise, guys, I hope you enjoy this 18th installment of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Thirty Years' War. My name is Zach Twomley and this is When Diplomacy Fails. Oh boy, what a week it's been in When Diplomacy Fails, Towers. If you weren't aware and you somehow missed that bombardment of social media posts, For God or the Devil, A History of the Thirty Years' War is out now. Well, according to Amazon, it's out on the 11th of August, but Amazon's probably just confused. I can assure you there's 130 boxes of this book in my apartment, and it is very much out now. And hopefully over the next few weeks, it will be arriving at your doorstep, or in your post box, or wherever is most convenient, I'm going to talk about the book a little bit later on, but for now, I'd just like to say thank you so much. Thank you for joining me right now, and even if you have no idea what I'm talking about or you have no intention of getting the book, I understand. And I just want to thank you, in general, for giving me 40 minutes of your day and listening to this show. It really does mean so much. And because you guys are passionate, because you guys are interested, and because you want to know more about the Thirty Years' War, I have a niche, and I have the opportunity to bring you this stuff. If the interest or the enthusiasm wasn't there on your side, then let me be clear, I wouldn't be here, because there would be no point for me to be here at all. Speaking of the show, let's get back to it, because last time our focus in episode 17 was on Ferdinand. He had been crowned as the Holy Roman Emperor, even though he had been deposed as the King of Bohemia, and he somehow, despite the odds, managed to cling on. Vienna came under siege several times throughout 1619, but thanks to a variety of factors, from the timely arrival of his cousin to the convoluted diplomacy which brought Poland into the war against Transylvania, Vienna, and thus the Austrian Habsburgs, and thus Ferdinand himself, was able to hold on. We saw the Spanish up the ante with their increased monetary and military support of their Habsburg cousin, and we saw, against many odds... Ferdinand of Styria, the most unpopular king of Bohemia, becoming the emperor. 
we ended the episode and saw something else. Just as he was confirmed as Emperor, Ferdinand was deposed as Bohemia's king. The newly minted and united confederation of Bohemian rebels were apparently ready to take their revolt to the next level, and with the decision to depose their king, their revolt became a rebellion. In terms of foreign support, the rebels had already welcomed their fair share, but it was this act of rendering their throne vacant that provided the Bohemians with an ideal opportunity to solicit an invaluable new patron. The next king of Bohemia, it was decided, would not and could not be a Habsburg, but whoever sat on the throne would have to bring something special to the table, something to recommend him to the rebels, something which would guarantee their security and independence, something which set him apart from the rest. The central narrative of the Thirty Years' War rests upon what happened next, because the Bohemians didn't offer the crown to just anybody. Well, actually, they offered it to several candidates of European renown. But most importantly, and where this concerns us, they offered it to the dynastic, political, and religious enemy of their former king, that individual being the Elector Palatine, Frederick V. From that point onwards, the Bohemian Revolt was sucked into generations of tension within the Holy Roman Empire. It became part of that rivalry between the Elector Palatine and the Habsburgs, and it was impossible, once Bohemia had been sucked into that vortex, to pull it back out again. Now, I'm sure if you're familiar with the Thirty Years' War story, you're probably familiar with what happens next. The seismic event in history where Frederick V, for a variety of reasons, accepted the Bohemian crown, became King of Bohemia, and transformed the Bohemian Revolt into a war of survival for the Habsburgs. Before we get there, though, we do have to provide a bit of background, and that's what this episode will attempt to do. In the next episode or so, the actual decision of accepting the Bohemian crown will be examined in the context of what we learn here. So, I hope you'll stay tuned for that, and pay attention here, even you down the back. Let's see how this event took shape then, shall we? If you're ready to begin, and if you've selected whether you're Team Frederick or Team Ferdinand, then... Let's get into this. If it is true that the Bohemians are about to depose Ferdinand and elect another king, let everyone prepare at once for a war lasting 20, 30 or 40 years. The Spaniards and the House of Austria will deploy all their worldly goods to recover Bohemia. Indeed, the Spaniards would rather lose the Netherlands than allow their house to lose control of Bohemia so disgracefully and so outrageously. These were the words of Johann Albrecht, Count of Solms, the Palatine's ambassador to the city of Frankfurt, who in this case was merely fulfilling his task in communicating the latest news from Bohemia to his master, the Elector Palatine. But did Frederick read these words? Did the Elector Palatine absorb their contents and core message? And did he read between the lines and grasp that, perhaps, his ambassador wasn't just recalling the news, he was also warning him against turning some of the rumours, doing the rounds at the time, into truth? We can't know for sure, but we know that Frederick V was not ignorant either of the risks involved in accepting the crown, of the constitutional implications, or of the position that this would force the Habsburgs into. We've seen in previous episodes that some accounts of Frederick paint him as the indecisive, bumbling fool, ignorant of what his advisers, above all Christian of Anhalt, were up to, 
and what everything even meant. C.V. Wedgwood, in her otherwise very accessible and readable book, even provides us with several ludicrous images of Frederick never realising what Anhalt was up to and being completely surprised by the pace of events. In one scene, Frederick meets with the Evangelical Union at Rothenburg in late November 1618 and is completely surprised by the objections of the Protestant princes assembled to the idea of intervention in the Bohemian Revolt full stop. By that point, Palatine diplomacy had already distinguished itself as one of the best hopes of the Bohemian rebels, and in league with the Duke of Savoy, the Palatinate provided badly needed monies, in addition to the mercenary captain, Ernst of Mansfeld, whom the rebels were soon to rely heavily upon. So Frederick and Anhalt had arranged all that by late 1618, but Wedgwood maintains that the elector was most ignorant of all the princes assembled as to Anhalt's actual policy. This despite the fact that, as we've learned, Anhalt was no king. Any document or decision made on Palatine policy would first need to pass across Frederick's desk. Unless the elector Palatine didn't read the volumes of correspondence which the Bohemian Revolt was producing, which is unlikely since he was clearly interested in its events, then there's no possible way that Frederick could have been so informed, or that, as Wedgwood tries to paint it, Frederick's main advisor, Christian of Anhalt, was pulling all the strings behind his back. In this same meeting at Rothenburg, we're told by Wedgwood that Frederick believed wholeheartedly in Anhalt's protestations that he was merely working for peace in the empire by intervening in the Bohemian crisis, whereas the other assembled princes saw right through Anhalt's scheme for what it truly was. Worse than this, worse than being this naive and being portrayed as believing everything Anhalt tells him, Wedgwood also portrays Frederick as producing a fantastically naive scheme to ensure peace in the empire, whereby the Evangelical Union would arm itself, persuade John George of Saxony to join in, and then present a petition to Emperor Matthias. Remember, Matthias would not die until March 1619, and these events were taking place in November 1618. And all of this, so Wedgwood seems to think, would demonstrate that the German Protestants were prepared, if it came down to it, to use force. This despite the fact that deep down, Frederick did not genuinely want war. Wedgwood notes that Frederick's plan was the fruit of youth and optimism, and that Christian of Anhalt could have pointed out to Frederick that it would have been impossible due to Saxon hostility to Calvinists. Instead of pointing these obvious facts out, though, Wedgwood claims that Anhalt found it simpler to use Frederick's trivial project as a cover for his private intrigues, and that by taking advantage of Frederick's confidence in him, Christian of Anhalt could give instructions to ambassadors that certainly never reached Frederick's ears, and keep the well-intentioned but incurious prince totally ignorant of the things which were being done in his name. Conveniently, Wedgwood then noted that shortly after concocting the scheme, Anhalt cracked and felt forced to reveal it to Frederick, whose trust in Anhalt was shaken, but not destroyed. This incredible journey into make-believe flies in the face of every fact we know about Frederick, and the structure of Palatine government, which always ensured, once he had reached his majority in 1614, that the elector Palatine would have the final say on whatever came across his desk. This fact alone invalidates much of the story Wedgwood presents, but it was the idea that Frederick could be so stupid and blindly ignorant of Saxon hostility towards Calvinism that truly undermines this version of events. 
the Evangelical Union, it should be pointed out, had been established with the express purpose of overcoming these disagreements and hostilities, Frederick could not have been ignorant to them even if he'd wanted to be, since he led the organisation which was charged with tightening the bonds of long-divided German Protestants. Furthermore, leadership of this organisation would have revealed that Saxon hostility remained intractable and deep, and Protestant division and caution also remained intense within the Empire. Frederick would only have had to look at the recent history of the Evangelical Union to see that whispers of conflict and pre-existing divisions had been more than enough to whittle down the members and forces of the Union considerably over the preceding years. If the process of merely existing in the tense political and religious climate of the Empire had shown him this, then the notion that he would be surprised when objections were raised against Palatine intervention in Bohemia becomes even less possible to believe. Wedgwood even noted that it was suspicious that Frederick should be in the Upper Palatinate, that portion of his lands which were sandwiched between Bavaria and Austria to the south, and Bohemia to the east, lands which he rarely visited, by the way, just at the time when Ferdinand was deposed as Bohemia's king in late August 1619. Another historian has even written that, As early as January 1619, Frederick was considering the possibility that he might procure the crown of Bohemia for himself. As we'll see later, the Elector Palatine had been considering the Bohemian question many months before that. Frederick was no fool, and he had not been blindly led to accept a scheme of Anhalt's making. He was aware of the potential of the Bohemian Revolt, and he wanted to be near the action, in case matters took a certain course. It should be added that, while the act of offering the Bohemian crown to a figure other than a Habsburg may appear revolutionary, it was a tactic which had been rooted as far back as 1612, when Matthias had assumed the crown. The next time their crown became vacant, the Bohemian Protestants fully intended to offer it to a non-Hamsburg. The problem was, they had not selected a candidate for this honour by 1617, when the Habsburg family doubled down on the idea of putting Ferdinand forward. If you recall the negotiations of the Oney Treaty, where the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs basically hammered out who was due to inherit what and who should stay out of whose business, then you'll remember the animated concerns of the Austrians regarding Bohemia. The longer the King of Spain, Philip III, took to declare his satisfaction in letting Bohemia out of his orbit, the longer the opposition to the Habsburgs would have to develop a plan for such an opposition candidate. Although much of Europe was surprised by the Bohemians' actions in August 1619, it would not have been seen as coming out of the blue in either Vienna or Heidelberg. The shock came more from the fact that the Bohemians actually followed through with their daring plan, rather than what the details of that daring plan actually were. It is important, for the sake of context, that we do not view Frederick's acceptance of the Bohemian crown in late September 1619 as coming out of nowhere, since doing so underrates the impact which a history of competition, suspicion and downright hostility had between the Palatine and Austrian Habsburg families. Since his conversion to Calvinism in the late 1560s, the Palatine elector and his family had become a centre of all that the Habsburgs loathed, and with the increase in Jesuit activity and the successes of the Counter-Reformation, it became dynastically as well as spiritually important to contest the Habsburgs at every possible stage. By reducing the Austrian Habsburgs and challenging their constitutional position, the succeeding Palatine electors aimed at undermining their strength and gaining allies against their predominance within the empire. 
Those who might be critical of what the Palatinate was doing here should bear in mind just how beleaguered the electors' court in Heidelberg must have felt by the turn of the century. With the Spanish and Austrians working in tandem, France had been overrun with religious warfare and the Dutch rebels locked into a desperate struggle for survival. It is worth reiterating the role which Christian of Anhalt played in supporting the Protestant candidate Henry of Navarre in 1591 during the French Wars of Religion, before Christian of Anhalt took up a place in the Upper Palatinate a few years later. It would be far too reductionist to claim that Frederick V was somehow influenced by the behaviour and stance of Christian of Anhalt. Instead, it would be more accurate to denote the decades of opposition to the Habsburgs, which Frederick's ancestors had maintained, and the arrival of Anhalt confirmed that Palatine diplomacy, vis-à-vis the Habsburgs, was not about to change. These facts, the competition, that history of intense competition between the Palatinate and the Austrian Habsburgs, is often lost in the story when examining the Thirty Years' War's major flashpoints. There was never any doubt as to where the Palatinate stood on the Bohemian Revolt. Frederick made sure of this when he became the first European ruler to recognise the Bohemian rebels' provisional government and to trumpet their cause. By September 1618, Frederick had begun to put his money where his mouth was, arranging with the Duke of Savoy to split the costs of a force of 4,000 men, composed of mercenaries, Germans and veterans of the recent Mantuan War. Again, the significance of this action should not be understated. Frederick was at this point the only German potentate to actively intervene in the Bohemian Revolt and contribute directly with military force. These actions were undertaken under the policy guise of aiding the Bohemians in their quest to secure their borders and increase their security, since to declare his intentions outright would have drawn much opposition from the Evangelical Union, as well as moderates in Germany such as the Elector of Saxony. All of this, again, is further evidence against the idea that Frederick was tone-deaf to the Union's objections, or tone-deaf to Saxon hostility. Much like his family's own rivalry with the Habsburgs, these obstacles were facts that he had been prepared to deal with, and which he had dealt with since he assumed his majority. We're going to get back to the story of the Palatinate versus the Habsburgs, but before we do that, I want to remind you of something very exciting, which happened in the last few days in When Diplomacy Fails land. If you weren't up to date with social media channels, then you probably aren't aware that our book, For God or the Devil, A History of the Thirty Years' War, is out now. If you want to go and get that book, the best place to go would be from the publisher itself, but Amazon should be acceptable as well. I'll put a link in the description below. This book is the result of many years of hard work, and it could not have been done without your guys' support. Those of you who support on Patreon or elsewhere will know that this book has been a long time coming, and many of you have been very patient in waiting its arrival, so I really do thank you for that, and I really appreciate that many of you are very eager to dive right into it, as indeed you should be. If it wasn't obvious yet, this book is essentially this podcast, but in written form, and of course edited to make it more readable. So in theory, you could get this book and read all the way to the end of the story and never have to listen to me ever again, or at least until we finish this 30 Years War series. But what other people have enjoyed doing is reading along with the podcast, so maybe that's something you're interested in doing too, or maybe you're just happy to chop and change and fly in and out of audio and written formats. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Whatever way you want to delve or absorb the Thirty Years' War is, of course, up to you. But if you are looking for a book that is rather large and covers the Thirty Years' War in immense detail, then I'd recommend For God or the Devil. It's in excess of a thousand pages, it weighs more than a kilogram, and it's my pride and joy. I'm so happy with how it turned out, and I think you will be too. So, head on over to that link in the description below. I announced a little while ago in the episode released just before this one that I wouldn't be selling this book at all anymore. I'm not personally selling it because the act of actually having to send it to you costs me too much money because postage and all that kind of thing is a bit of a nightmare. So I'm relying on those big companies to do the postage instead, which is why you can't buy it from my shop. You can only buy it from the publisher's shop, Wingdazar Publishing and their storeroom. So head on over to there. The link is in the description below. I should also add that if you want to win a copy, a signed copy, no less, of this book, then we are giving away one on Twitter and one on the Facebook page. All you have to do is share the post, you can't miss it, and comment that you are a history friend and like it as well. It's very simple and straightforward and these competitions have been giving me a lot of traction on social media, which is great when I'm trying to spread the message of free history and this brand new book that I have out. So head on over there if you want to know more, and do, I would encourage you to follow me on Twitter or check out the Facebook page too, just so you're always keeping up with what When Diplomacy Fails is doing, because I admit it can be a bit hard to keep up with us sometimes, because we very rarely take a rest these days. But yes, this book is out, it's a huge milestone in my career and in the podcast's life cycle, and I really think that it's going to make a big difference. Obviously, I'm biased, but speaking of biased, let's return to the actual history here. Christoph von Donna was a Palatine ambassador who had been in place in Austria and in Bohemia since 1617, and he was well positioned once the revolt broke out to receive the latest news and communicate it back to his master, the Elector Palatine. It was while Bohemian forces triumphed against the Habsburgs, most spectacularly in the storming of Pilsen in late November 1618, that the notion of Frederick's candidature for the Bohemian crown 
first began to swirl around the discussions between the ambassador and the Bohemians, with some seriousness. In the words of Brennan Purcell, the author who has done, I would argue, the most to bring forward the character of Frederick V, The question, that is the question of the Bohemian crown, should not have come as a complete surprise to the young prince. Indeed, paying keen attention to events in Bohemia as he certainly was, Frederick may even have planned for the rebels to offer him the crown in the near future. Brennan Purcell, in his book The Winter King, which provides such an invaluable revisionist account of the Elector Palatine's personality, career and legacy, noted further on the idea of a Palatine candidate for the Bohemian crown, writing, There had been a history of rumours and designs whereby an Elector Palatine would relieve the Bohemian throne of its Habsburg occupant. Both John Casimir and Frederick IV had entertained similar aspirations, but not very seriously. The repeated rebellions in the first years of the 17th century had raised the level of these aspirations for Frederick V, which, for some, were becoming expectations by the time of his marriage in 1613. Sources show that the Spanish monarch, the papacy, the Venetians, the imperial court, and perhaps the Ottoman Turks as well, had heard rumours of an intended usurpation of Bohemia by Frederick V, which would have made the election of a Protestant Holy Roman Emperor a distinct possibility. Wedgwood presents Frederick's letters, which were written around the time of the Bohemian Revolt and sent out to the courts of Europe, in which the Elector Palatine preached of his desire for peace in the Bohemian affair as evidence of his confusion, his ignorance of the reality, or even his bad faith considering what followed. Yet it is important to denote, as Brennan Purcell does, that for Frederick, peace and justice for the Bohemians were not mutually exclusive ideas. To attain the Bohemian peace, Frederick was willing to use diplomacy, resort to military means, and submit to no small amount of dynastic opportunism, as Purcell put it. On the 25th of November, 1618, Frederick met with his core advisers, including Ludwig Camerarius, his Calvinist confessor, Christian of Anhalt, Count Johann Albrecht of Solms, whose quote opened this episode, and several other members of his court. The question on everyone's minds was the news passed to Heidelberg by Christoph von Donna, the Palatine ambassador then in Bohemia. Would Frederick accept or even consider the Bohemian crown? Or would he not? Frederick proved, himself, remarkably wise under the circumstances, and he listened to the counsel of his advisers, who upheld that it would be better to wait and see what happened with the Bohemian succession for the moment, rather than rushing in. The Emperor, Matthias, because he was still alive at this point, could still be leaned on, and a different candidate for the Bohemians within the Habsburg family could be selected if the revolt went to a certain level. Frederick was also aware of a fact which is sometimes held against him, that the Bohemians were eagerly grasping at the possibility of electing other candidates in Europe, who were all recommended or failed to be considered depending on their connections and the potential benefits which the Bohemians could gain from them. Frederick wasn't stupid, in other words. He saw the wisdom behind waiting for a few months at least to see what happened next in Bohemia. Since the strategic position of the Habsburgs in Austria, let alone in Bohemia, was pretty poor by late 1618, Frederick was losing nothing by mulling the issue over further. The Elector Palatine was also cautious about accepting the Bohemian crown because he recognised the danger inherent in this decision. If the Bohemians offered him their throne, then his Palatinate would surely be set upon by the Austrian Habsburgs, by their Spanish allies, 
and by others who were in league with them. There was little point in accepting Bohemia, only for him to lose the Palatinate, but Frederick was cautious for another reason, this one constitutional. If the revolt against the Habsburgs descended into a rebellion against the very notion of the Habsburg authority, Frederick wanted to be certain that the Bohemians had the legislative power to elect their own king on their own power. In his further efforts to acquire a more complete picture, he inquired about the Habsburgs' abuses of the Bohemians' constitutional privileges, and whether the Letter of Majesty genuinely was in danger. Interestingly, Frederick displayed some concerns during his correspondence about the likelihood of being able to guarantee his son's candidature for the crown in the future. Did Frederick wish to transform the Kingdom of Bohemia into a hereditary extension of his own power, just as the Habsburgs hoped to do? We can't know for certain, but we do know that the Upper Palatinate bordered Bohemia, and uniting the governments of the rebels with that of the governorship of Christian of Anhalt would not have been the most curious fusing of administrations in European history. Frederick's quest for more information didn't rest there, though. Inquiring about the viability of the revolt and the likelihood of its success, he picked the brains of his subordinates so that he was informed about Bohemia's army, its rate of pay, the proportion of infantry to cavalry, its list of officers, and the conditions of the strategic land routes which passed between Bohemia, Passau, and Austria. In his communications with the Bohemian estates, Frederick compelled those in revolt to maintain a hearty correspondence with the Dutch and the English, as well as the Evangelical Union. From these actions in late 1618, we can say with some certainty that Frederick was more interested in ensuring the survival and success of the Bohemian Revolt than he was in guaranteeing his candidacy for the Bohemian throne. Indeed, one of the major reasons for Frederick's apparent reluctance to wholeheartedly accept the Bohemian crown can be explained not merely by the dangers such a plan posed, but also by the fact that a far more determined and self-confident candidate for the Bohemian throne had put himself forward, and Frederick was actually willing to support him. This forgotten candidate's name for the Bohemian throne was Charles Emmanuel, the Duke of Savoy, and he had conducted a policy alongside the Elector Palatine for several months, which aimed at doing nothing less than undermining the Habsburgs in Bohemia for their mutual gain. It could not be said that Frederick's ambitions went further than this for the moment, but Charles Emmanuel's certainly did. He desired not only the Bohemian crown, but also to leverage this acquisition to then become Holy Roman Emperor once Matthias died. Even Brennan Purcell described Charles Emmanuel's plan as fundamentally unrealistic, but this shouldn't detract from the fact that Palatine Savoyard diplomacy aimed seriously towards this end. Savoy could supply the Italian veterans who had recently fought in the Mantuan War, and for this invaluable resource, Frederick was willing to negotiate and promise whatever it took. In January 1619, Charles Emmanuel offered to send an army of 7,000 men to Bohemia to provide 1.5 million ducats in subsidies and to allocate Hungary, Alsace and portions of Austria to Frederick if Frederick declared in return his intentions to approve the Savoyard candidacy for the Bohemian and Imperial thrones. To demonstrate his own seriousness, Charles Emmanuel then turned off the tap of subsidies in March to prove just how badly Frederick V needed him. The Elector Palatine received the message loud and clear. Christian of Anhalt was sent to sign the proposed treaty in person, which was done in May 1619, just as the rebels were closing in on Vienna. As it happened, Savoy's promised subsidies never arrived, 
and by the end of summer, the Duke cut off his subsidies entirely, once it became clear that the rebels intended to offer the throne to Frederick instead of him. Still, Palatine's Savoyard diplomacy and Frederick's role in it demonstrated in the starkest terms how determined the Elector Palatine was to undermine the Habsburgs and interfere in the Bohemian Revolt. As we've seen though, it had also underlined Frederick's hesitation in accepting the Bohemian crown. He had even been willing to pass the honour onto someone else. Shrouded as it was under the ominous clouds of anxiety and conflict, the significance of the Bohemian decision to formally depose Ferdinand as their king should not be understated. A century of solid, continuous Habsburg rule of this elective monarchy, which came so close to a hereditary right, was now apparently at an end. Ferdinand was voted as deposed by a majority of the estates of Bohemia's representatives, and the former king was accused of violating his promises regarding the Letter of Majesty, kidnapping Cardinal Cleasel, invading Moravia unlawfully, promoting Jesuit designs, and on top of all that, his rumoured vow to extirpate heresy in Bohemia was also levelled against him. On the 22nd of August, 1619, Ferdinand was, according to the Bohemians that had placed him on the throne, no longer the king of their lands and subjects. This transformed the task of the Bohemians from justifying their deposition to locating a suitable candidate to stand in Ferdinand's place. As the Bohemians worked to begin a new era of statehood, Frederick worked to ensure that Ferdinand didn't become emperor. Obviously, we know he failed in this mission, but it was not from a lack of trying. The Elector Palatine sent petitions to all the important electors, discussing extensive judicial matters with the Elector of Saxony in spring 1619, and meeting with the Elector of Mainz in June. While in the company of the Elector of Mainz, Frederick successfully persuaded or coerced him to postpone the imperial election for another month, beyond the proposed date of the 20th of July, and into late August 1619 instead. Atop Frederick's arguments against the Habsburg candidature, was the danger which transforming the office of Holy Roman Emperor into a hereditary right would pose to the imperial constitution, and Ferdinand, with his aggressive confessionalism, was a big part of this problem. The Archbishop of Mainz gave cold replies, but Frederick persisted with this avenue of electoral diplomacy. Much was clearly riding upon the Empire's electoral college to fulfil its function and elect a new emperor, and while it sat in this weighted position in late August 1619, Frederick wanted to ensure that the grievances of the Bohemians and the integrity of the potential candidates were given proper consideration. A month was the most that those already assembled in Frankfurt would wait, though. To the Elector of Cologne, who happened to be the brother of Maximilian of Bavaria, he believed that postponing the election any longer would only serve to aggravate the Bohemian revolt. The Elector of Trier echoed this view, which left only the electors of Saxony and Brandenburg on the fence. Brandenburg tended to follow Palatine policy since the Elector's conversion to Calvinism some years before, but John George of Saxony was here committed to maintaining the status quo, and he had been troubled by the Bohemian Revolt as well. John George of Saxony supported crushing the Bohemian Revolt, and he supported the candidate of Ferdinand, who at this point in the discussions was still King of Bohemia. Ferdinand, as King of Bohemia, and in possession of a vote which would facilitate his accession to the imperial throne, of course compelled those present to move ahead with the imperial election. All of this is to say that Frederick became isolated, and his prospects for success in preventing Ferdinand's succession became highly doubtful. 
Still though, in July 1619, as Frederick made his way to the Upper Palatinate to watch over the Evangelical Union's activities there, and perhaps to secure other Bohemian decisions in the near future, he had a list of instructions prepared for his ambassadors to the election in Frankfurt. Four candidates, the most important of whom was Maximilian of Bavaria, provided Frederick with what he believed was a hopeful method of outmanoeuvring Ferdinand's candidature. Of course, Maximilian's propensity to vote for Ferdinand, his relative and brother-in-law, was well known, but it was not impossible that Frederick could persuade the elector of Cologne, Maximilian's brother, and two other electors to support Maximilian as the candidate for the Holy Roman Emperor. So, with this majority of four votes, the Duke of Bavaria's accession would then be secured. Again, much like Frederick's other initiatives, the idea of placing Maximilian of Bavaria on the imperial throne was based in history. Since at least 1616, the Duke of Bavaria appeared a straightforward, reasonable candidate to succeed Matthias. That he was a Catholic, raised upon a diet of Jesuit words and lessons, didn't dissuade Frederick from this course, and should dissuade us from categorising the Thirty Years' War as a religious conflict at its core. If Frederick truly despised Catholics, then his distant Wittelsbach cousin Maximilian would never have been on his radar. Since Frederick despised the Habsburgs' unconstitutional and inflammatory behaviour rather than their religious persuasion, the choice of the Catholic Maximilian was not that radical of a concept for the Calvinist elector Palatine. It deserves mention that during the sounding out process of Maximilian, Frederick had travelled to meet with the Duke of Bavaria in spring 1618. Both men pledged to keep the other informed on the likelihood of confessional conflict in the future and to work together on pacifying it. Throughout these meetings with the Duke of Bavaria, Maximilian refused to accept the Palatine nomination for the Emperor's seat, based on the fact, as Maximilian told Frederick, that the scheme was not worth the risks. To Frederick, this indicated that if his success could be guaranteed, then Maximilian would contest the election. It was failure that Maximilian seemed to fear, rather than going against the Habsburg monopoly per se. It is clear, Frederick wrote, that the Duke may not refuse it at all if he was to see some possibility. They are very envious of the House of Austria. Interestingly, Frederick had met with Maximilian here in spring 1618 to talk about the anticipated imperial diet which Matthias was expected to host later in the year, where the Emperor would request support for Ferdinand to succeed him. Thanks to the defenestration of Prague, these plans had been postponed, but Frederick had evidently not forgotten the conversations which preceded them. To cut a long story short, Frederick lost the battle against the Habsburgs in the halls of Frankfurt, but before this had been officially confirmed, he learned on the 24th of August 1619 that the Bohemians, having overthrown their king, were leaning strongly towards the Elector Palatine as their next king. The day after Ferdinand's successful election as emperor, Frederick learned that, in fact, the Bohemians had chosen him as their king and that the vote was overwhelmingly in his favour. In the next episode, we will examine Frederick's inner struggle in more detail as he worked to reconcile the bare facts with the honours and opportunities that the new Bohemian crown would provide. It is a story, much like this one, of disappointment, diplomacy and dallying, and I can't wait to tell it all to you next time. Until then, though, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 18 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening. Go get that book, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.